Let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 49. Genesis 49. And I'm going to read and preach verses 13 through 27 this morning, the remainder of the blessing that Jacob pronounces on his 12 sons. Last week, we looked at the words that he spoke on his deathbed to Reuben and to Simeon and Levi and to Judah. And this morning, we'll look at what he says to the rest of his sons, the remaining eight sons. And as we do so, let's remember together that this is not just a blessing, it is also a prophecy, as I said last week, where Jacob, enabled by the Spirit, tells his sons, quote, what shall happen to you in days to come, as he said in verse one of the chapter, which refers mainly to the distant future when the 12 tribes of Israel that bear the names of these sons are in the land of Canaan in their tribal allotments. But as we'll see, these words are also relevant for us today, especially as we consider what they say about the character of God, who is unchanging, and about who he is for us and what he promises to do in us as his people, ultimately through Christ. So let's ask God to help us as we come again to his word, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help as we come again to your word this morning because we recognize that we cannot rightly understand and apply your word to our hearts and lives without your enabling grace. And so we pray that you would give us that grace now. Give us open eyes and open ears and open hearts to receive your word as it is read and preached. And we ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 49, starting at verse 13 and reading down through verse 27. This is the word of God. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, 
blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. As you may have noticed, quite a bit of attention is given to Joseph in these verses, much like the attention given to Judah in the previous section. And so as you can see in your sermon notes, what we're going to do is we're going to look first at the rest of the brothers, Zebulun through Benjamin, accepting Joseph. And then we'll look at Joseph's, Jacob's words to Joseph. So let's jump right in with Zebulun. He couldn't have been too disappointed with Jacob's opening words to him there in verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. Not bad. Though, of course, these words would not be fulfilled until long after he was gone. In fact, it's hard to be sure exactly when in the future they were fulfilled because the land that was allotted to the tribe of Zebulun didn't reach to the sea, to the Mediterranean Sea. The territory of Zebulun was landlocked. So this may be referring to a time before the official settlement when the tribe of Zebulun perhaps dwelt temporarily at the shore of the sea where they were able to carry out what it says in the middle of the verse there, he shall become a haven for ships, that is a haven from the sea. That's why so many port towns or port cities have the word haven in their name, right? Like the gray havens in Tolkien's Middle Earth or narrow haven in Lewis's Narnia or New Haven, Connecticut, birthplace of Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife. At the end of the verse, it says, and his border shall be at Sidon. Sidon was a city on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's mentioned in Jesus' famous words in Matthew 11, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So Zebulun's border shall be at Sidon, and he will dwell at the shore of the sea, and he will be a haven for ships. Then Jacob turns to Issachar, there in verse 14, and he calls him a strong donkey. Notice how many of the sons are compared to animals. Judah's already been compared to a lion. Issachar here is a donkey. Dan is a serpent. Naphtali is a doe. And Benjamin is a wolf. Reminds us how colorful and thought-provoking the poetry of the Old Testament is, which really encourages us to read slowly, doesn't it? And to meditate on what we read. Jacob calls Issachar a strong donkey, which didn't mean anything politically at the time. It meant rather that the tribe of Issachar would be strong, but that they would also be servants. So like a donkey in that respect, since donkeys served as beasts of burden. Crouching, as it says, between the sheepfolds, or perhaps between its saddlebags. Both of those images relate to a donkey's service. And verse 15 expands things a bit. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, probably referring to their allotted land, which was very fertile land located south and a bit west of the Sea of Galilee. 
So he bowed his shoulder to bear, to bear burdens, and became a servant at forced labor, probably to the Canaanites, though again, it's hard to be sure exactly when this was fulfilled. Matthew Henry, commenting on this verse rather creatively, wrote, let us, with an eye of faith, see the heavenly rest to be good and that land of promise to be pleasant, and this will make our present services easy and encourage us to bow our shoulder to them. So Jacob calls Issachar a donkey. Then he calls Dan a serpent. First he says in verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Judge in the sense of vindicate. So as one of the tribes of Israel, Dan is going to do something to vindicate the tribes of Israel or his people. Then verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And again, it's hard to be certain exactly when this was fulfilled, but it was probably pointing ahead either to Samson, one of the judges who was from the tribe of Dan, who was very crafty toward the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, you'll recall, like when he tied torches to the tails of foxes and then lit the torches and let the foxes loose into the grain fields of the Philistines to destroy their grain. Or this could be referring to the time when the people of Dan conquered the city of Laish rather unexpectedly in Judges 18 verse 27. But the people of Dan came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. So Dan is going to vindicate the people of Israel in some sort of serpent-like manner. Again, Jacob is speaking these words of prophecy enabled by the Spirit to his sons, telling them what shall happen to them in days to come. But then he pauses there in verse 18 and says to the Lord, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Why does he pause and say this to the Lord? Perhaps it was because he was near death and maybe he felt the pangs of death at this particular moment and so he called out to the Lord for deliverance, in which case this would be a prayer for himself. But I think it's more likely that it was a prayer for his descendants. In light of all he's been prophesying about them, in light of all the challenges they will face in the future, he asks the Lord to save his people, to save Israel. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Either way, he's calling out to the Lord for salvation. You know, this is what we are called to do as the people of God today. To wait for, to hope for, to look for, to long for the salvation of the Lord. And of course, we don't wait for that salvation in the same way Jacob did or other Old Testament believers did who waited for the coming of the Messiah because the Messiah has already come and done his saving work. Remember what Simeon said in Luke 2, that Decker took us to. As he held the Messiah in his arms, the baby Jesus, Simeon said to God, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So the salvation of the Lord has already come in Christ. And so we don't wait for it in the same way that Old Testament believers did. But we do wait for it in another sense, don't we? We're not waiting for Christ to come because he's already come, but we are waiting for him to come again. We long for his return. We look forward to the second coming of Christ and to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We wait for the salvation of the Lord in that sense. And let me say this. Every time you experience the brokenness of life in this fallen world, let it make you long for the return of Christ. Let it make you look forward a little more to the second coming. When you read something discouraging in the news, when you experience a loss or disappointment, when you or someone you love gets a troubling medical diagnosis, when you're overwhelmed by all the sin in your heart or the evil in our world, let it make you long for the world to come. Say to the Lord, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, as it says at the very end of the Bible. Let the brokenness of this world make you long for the world to come. One more thing, though, before we move on to what Jacob says to the rest of the brothers, let's remember that the salvation we wait for and long for that we need is not just in the future, it's in the present. It's in the here and now. We need God to save us now from our sin. Yes, he has saved us from the guilt of sin on the cross. And yes, he will save us from the presence of sin when he returns. But we also need him to save us from the power of sin in the here and now. We have been justified once and for all. We will be glorified in the future but we need to be sanctified in the present. We need God to save us from our sins every day. And so we wait for the salvation of the Lord in that sense too. We look to him to save us from our sin. So when you're tempted to sin, look to Christ to save you because only he can. Use the means he's given you of course, but look to him as you use the means. Say to the Lord, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I need you to save me from this sin. Only you have the power to save me, and so I look to you in faith, leaning on you, relying on you, depending on you. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Make that a daily prayer. Make it an hourly prayer. Make it a moment-by-moment prayer as you wage war against your sin. Well, after Jacob prays to God in verse 18, he turns his attention to Gad in verse 19, and he's more brief with the remaining sons except Joseph. To Gad, he says, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. The name Gad sounds like the Hebrew words for raiders and also raid. So there's a lot of punning going on in this verse. 
and other verses too. The tribe of Gad settled on the east side of the Jordan River, and so they were sort of on the frontier of things, on the border, and therefore exposed to raiders, and yet they raided the raiders. They are described in First Chronicles as valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war, and also as mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. So Jacob's words to Gad are about victory. His words to Asher are about prosperity. He says there in verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. The land of the tribe of Asher was a fertile land and not only did it yield rich food, but also royal delicacies, perhaps for the courts of the kings of Israel or for the courts of the surrounding nations. And by the way, just as a side note here, as we read about rich food, isn't God good to give us food? To give us all different kinds of food and such an abundance of food ordinarily? Food reminds us of our dependence on God who gives us our daily bread. And it reminds us of the goodness of God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. At least three times a day, we have a chance to taste the goodness of the Lord and the food that he provides. Such an abundance of evidence of his goodness. Well, after Jacob's words to Asher about prosperity, his words to Naphtali are about fertility. He says in verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. And while it's not clear exactly what this is referring to in terms of the future of the tribe of Naphtali, it is clear that it has to do with fertility and the fact that they will be especially blessed in that regard, not by the Canaanite fertility gods, but by the one true God who is the sovereign Lord and giver of life. Before we look at Joseph, let's skip down to Benjamin in verse 27. See what Jacob says to Benjamin there. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Similar to what Jacob said to Judah when he compared him to a lion who kills his prey and takes it back to his den and crouches over it, guarding it. And like Judah, this description of Benjamin refers to his victories over his enemies. Like in the book of Judges, where God delivered his people from the Moabites through Ehud, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, who killed Eglon, the king of Moab, in a manner consistent with this description of Benjamin as a ravenous wolf. Judges 3, verses 20 through 23. And Ehud came to Eglon as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. 
Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And it goes on to say that he escaped and gathered the people of Israel and led them later in victory over the Moabites. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So those are Jacob's words to the rest of his sons, excluding Joseph. I want us to look now at what he says to Joseph himself. This is verses 22 through 26. Just to give you a sense for the structure of what he says, if you look at those verses, in verse 22, Jacob compares Joseph to a fruit tree. Verses 23 and 24 are a poetic description of his brothers attacking him and of God helping him. And then 25 and 26, Jacob assures Joseph that God will help him and his descendants in the future and will bless him and them abundantly. Look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough or branch, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Kent Hughes captured this verse well when he wrote, the metaphor is evocative of a well-watered tree that is so healthy and fruit-laden that its branches hang low over garden walls, offering its fruit to all who pass by. Certainly, this is what Joseph had been for his family and the surrounding world during the famine. A fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, branches running over the wall. We all want to be this way, don't we? For the glory of Christ and for the good of others, we want to bear fruit. We want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, Philippians 1. We want our roots to sink deep into the Lord and his word and our fruits to spread far and wide to the nourishment of others. And God can make it so. God can make it so and we should pray that it would be so. We should pray that we would be like the blessed man described in Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We should pray that we'd be like the blessed man in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit." We should pray also that we'd be like the righteous described at the end of Psalm 92. Listen to these words. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I think those three passages would be well worth meditating on and praying through, perhaps this afternoon as part of keeping the Sabbath day holy, perhaps in a quiet time sometime this week. 
You want to write down those references. It's Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. And Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. And of course, our verses here as well. Joseph is a fruit-bearing fruit tree. And that's what we want to be. It's what we are by God's grace as believers. And it's what we can be more and more. So let's pray for it and pursue it. In verses 23 and 24, Jacob calls Joseph's mind and the minds of his brothers back to the distant past. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely which is probably a reference to his brothers who all those years ago hated him and could not speak peacefully to him and attacked him and sold him into slavery. But it probably also refers to the other archers, as it were, in Joseph's life, the slave traders who took him down to Egypt, Potiphar's wife who tempted him and then falsely accused him, Potiphar himself who threw him into the king's prison, the cupbearer to the king who forgot him, and perhaps others along the way. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Verse 24, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. The image is probably of a warrior keeping his bow steady but his arms also moved quickly to get more arrows and to aim at different targets. And the idea is that Joseph remained steady and was ultimately victorious over his enemies. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. How? By his own strength? No. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd the stone of Israel. Those are wonderful descriptions of who God was for Joseph. Wonderful descriptions of who God is for us today. He is the mighty one of Jacob, which speaks both of his power and of his covenant. He is the mighty one, really the almighty one, and he is the mighty one of Jacob, the God of Jacob and the God of Jacob's offspring. He was and still is the mighty one of Jacob who strengthens our arms as we fight against our enemies. And if the mighty one of Jacob is the one who is strengthening us and helping us and upholding us, then whom shall we fear? Psalm 27, verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Romans eight thirty one. if God is for us, who can be against us? Many will try, but none of them are stronger than the mighty one of Jacob. And we must remember that and believe that and act upon that. God is also referred to here as the shepherd, which we talked about recently when we considered Jacob's words in the previous chapter, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. 
something we could all say as believers. And we should remember that God is a good shepherd, not a bad shepherd. And he never takes a break from shepherding us. The Lord is not our shepherd sometimes. The Lord is our shepherd always. He is also the stone of Israel. He is our rock. I remember being on the White Rocks Trail with Kristen and the kids a while back and we came across this massive rock. It was probably 20 feet tall and it went on for a good while and I had us all stop and put our hands on the rock and on the count of three, all try to push the rock as hard as we could, which everyone played along with. And of course, we couldn't move this massive rock. That was the object lesson. That massive rock was immovable. But how much more immovable is God? That massive rock is just a little grain of sand compared to God. God is our rock. God is the stone of Israel who made the whole universe. He is immovable and unshakable and unchangeable. And since we are the complete opposite, we need him. We need him to be our rock of ages, cleft for us so that we can hide ourselves in him. Jacob continues in the final verses of our passage today, which we'll look at as we come to a close. Verses 25 and 26, he assures Jacob, or Joseph rather, that God will help him and his descendants and will bless him and them abundantly. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you. Notice again the covenantal language, the God of your father. By the almighty who will bless you. Again, the emphasis on God's power, God's omnipotence. He is the almighty. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So agricultural, familial blessings. The blessings of your father, that is Jacob, are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, that is Isaac and Rebecca, or perhaps Isaac and also Abraham before him, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. In other words, boundless blessings. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. The covenant God, who is almighty, will help you and will bless you, he says. He will bless you abundantly. That's true for all of God's people, including us today. We have the promise many times over in Scripture that God will help us and that God will bless us. Even though we don't deserve it because of our sins. If we've put our trust in Christ for salvation from our sins, God is all these things for us. So if you haven't done that, put your trust in Christ this morning. And if you have, be encouraged. God is the mighty one of Jacob. He is our shepherd. He is the stone of Israel, our rock. 
He is the covenant God. He is the almighty God. And he promises to help us and to bless us. He has helped us and blessed us in the past. He will help us and bless us in the future. That's what we're about to sing together. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Oh, be our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Whatever troubles we face, the mighty one of Jacob will help us and bless us. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you for who you are as revealed to us in this passage through the words of Jacob to his sons. We pray that you would enable us to soak in all we've heard about you and about ourselves and about Christ and to bear fruit as a result. And we thank you that you promised to help us and to bless us to be our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a minute during, during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll respond to God's word together with singing.